Ecclesiastes 12, 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Fear God and keep his commandments. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Church, good to be with you. My name is uh, Reed Kappel. I serve as one of the pastors here of the Olathe campus of Christ Community. And uh, whether you're new, if you're a guest, or if you've been with us for quite some time, um, I say it every Sunday, but it is a joy to gather together and worship. And so I want to uh, pray for our time as we turn to God's word, as we hear from him, as we prepare to be formed and shaped by his timely and timeless truth. And so uh, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pause and slow ourselves down in this time. One, because we, we live such hurried lives in many ways. And I know, Lord, for myself, I bring a lot of, of exhaustion and, and concern and worry and anxiety right now, even into this moment. And I'm sure that some of my dear brothers and sisters carry the same things. Lord, I ask in this moment that you would calm us. And that you would, by the power of your Spirit, speak to us boldly and tenderly. That you would awaken us to the truth that is found in your word. That we might behold wondrous things from it. That we might see the Lord Jesus as the source of all truth, of wisdom, and goodness. Lord, I pray against any schemes of our enemy that would keep us from hearing, knowing, trusting, and delighting in you. I pray that together we would seek to live our lives built upon this firm foundation of your love towards us so that we will not be shaken. In a world where there is so much that shakes around us, may we cling to you, the source of truth and life. And so, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is in the name of Christ, our King and Redeemer, and for his glory that we pray. Amen. In 2007, uh, Randy Posh gave his final lecture uh, to his students. Randy served as a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon. And and his lecture, his last lecture that he gave was entitled, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. And it was not a lecture uh, that was around his area of expertise. Uh, It was really an attempt for him to offer insights into what he thought to be the path to the good life. And the power of this last lecture by Randy was not just found in the words that he offered in his last instruction, but it was found in the surrounding context of why he was giving his last lecture. Just a year before Randy's last lecture, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and was not given much time to live. 
And as is customary in many universities, when a professor is resigning or retiring, they are offered the opportunity to give their last lecture. And so it was this impending death that inspired the talk that he gave. In fact, it was so inspiring that it resulted in his lecture becoming a book that was later published uh, in 2008 entitled The Last Lecture. Uh, The book became a a bestseller. It has sold over 5 million copies. I'm sure some of you have probably even read it. It's been translated as of today into 48 languages around the world. This book had a far reach and impact, but unfortunately, Randy passed away just a few months after the book was released and wasn't able to see the fullness of the impact of his last lecture. And, and I share this, this story as a way to help us see, and I think we all know this, that there's something about hearing the words of someone who is facing the end of life that causes us to lean in a bit more, to, to listen, to pay attention, to try to understand what they are saying to us because there's something about that moment of being near the end where someone's maybe more likely to be brutally honest about their understandings and about what life is really about. And I think this is in many ways why the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that we are compelled to lean in and listen to. Yes, it's a dark book, but it is also a book that we find refreshing in some ways because of how brutally honest it is. I remember talking to to, to someone when this series started, and that was how they described Ecclesiastes. Like, oh, it's such a great book. It's just so brutally honest. And we find that in the words of Kohelet, the preacher, who has lived his life and tells tales of what he has experienced to tell us that life really seems meaningless. So today uh, is our last Sunday in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, This is the cue where the congregation sighs with relief and joy. And so it has been a hard book, right? If you have been with us over these past few weeks, you know how hard and heavy, but also how strangely hopeful this book has been. And in many ways, just as Randy offered his last lecture to impart his own wisdom for life, Ecclesiastes functions in a similar way, offering wisdom to us. At the end of this powerfully perplexing book, we find the narrator returning to frame the entire message of this book. And so what is the great wisdom he gives us in life, in this world that is filled with seemingly meaningless smoke? He says, fear God and do what he says. That's it. Fear God and do what he says. It's kind of anticlimactic if you think about it, but as we look closely at this last lecture of Ecclesiastes, I want us to see the profound depth and power of what these words are conveying to us and what I believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking through the narrator and Kohelet together is this, that fearing God frees us from all fear. Fearing God frees us from all fear. Now, depending on your your background, your religious background, your association with that phrase, the fear of God, you may have a very positive connotation, you may have a very negative connotation to the phrase, the fear of God. You may not see it as loving instruction, but rather as legalistic instruction. It's not an invitation into a joyful life. It feels as though it's one more burden that we carry. And that's because we tend to think of fear, and rightly so in many ways, as a a negative emotion. I mean, when you think about it, the most frequent command that God gives throughout the entire biblical storyline, do you know what it is? It is fear not. 
Do not be afraid. The most frequent command God gives is do not be afraid. So how are we to conclude that the fear of God, that very God who tells us to fear not, how do we conclude that the fear of God is a good thing? How does fearing God free us from all fear? And that's the question I want to look at as we kind of bring Ecclesiastes to a close. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes 12, whether print or a digital version. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have Bibles on the tables between here and the lobby. Uh, there's ones in English, Spanish. Feel free to grab one. It's a gift to you. But I want to read again verses 8 and 9, and, and that's by design because you'll see the two voices of Ecclesiastes represented here. Verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. He closes the book in the same way as he opens it. And then verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now again, Ecclesiastes has two voices. There's the narrator who opens the book and then introduces us to Kohelet, the preacher, this man who has lived his life fully, has tried to seek meaning and significance and value in, in the world, and he concludes that all of life is hevel. It's that Hebrew word that is translated meaningless or futility or vanity. It literally means smoke. And then the narrator comes back at the end of chapter 12 and reframes the book for us. But, but that word hevel that we, we've seen throughout this series, it, it's, it's less about meaninglessness, although that is part of it, but it's more about the mysterious nature of life. It's not that life has no meaning whatsoever, it's that life is confusing, it is perplexing, it is enigmatic, it is hard to wrap our minds around. And so just like being surrounded by smoke, it's hard to see and make sense of the, the surroundings that you're in. In the same way, Kohelet concludes that life is filled with smoke. Life is chaotic, mysterious, unpredictable, and out of control. And that's how he ends. Drops the mic and walks off stage. Life is full of hevel. But that is not how the book ends. The narrator comes in and kind of, kind of cleans up the mess that Kohelet has created and tries to reframe what he's been saying over these past several chapters. And he frames the message of Ecclesiastes for us. Because notice, he go, we go from verse 8, vanity of vanity is all of vanities, that's Kohelet, he's done. And now the narrator comes in. And in the following verses, for the remainder of the chapter, we see the wisdom offered to us by the narrator. Look with me again at verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." Now, I'll explain what the goads are, because we don't really use that term very often in kind of colloquial conversation, like, how are the goads today? Like, we just, we don't really talk about that. But I'll come back to that in a second. But I want us to notice in verse 12, the word of warning, that the narrator's telling us, beware of wisdom that is not first and foremost from our shepherd, from God himself. And in this context, what, what the narrator is telling us is like, look, wisdom should be first sought after in God himself before we find it in anything else. We should be cautious of wisdom from any other source. And in this context, the narrator is referring to Kohelet. So in other words, the, the narrator is saying, hey, if you listen to Kohelet too closely, you may go down a path that you don't want to go. 
If you listen to him and take your wisdom from him, you may go down the path of believing that life is all about pleasure or going down the path of life is all about pointlessness. And neither are going to take you where you want to go. And so when, when, when this happens, when we listen to Kohelet and go down either the path of life is really about pleasure or kind of into this nihilistic defeatism of life is pointless, we find ourselves easily falling into fear. If we go down the path of life is about pleasure, we can fall into the fear of, well, what, am I pursuing the right pleasures? Or is there something else I'm missing out on? We have massive FOMO, this fear of missing out because I'm pursuing this pleasure, but, but maybe I need to be pursuing this pleasure. But if we go down the path that life is pointless, then we are fearing the, the, the finality of death that awaits all of us. And so in this moment, we feel that what the narrator is telling us, he's essentially telling us that if we do not fear God, we will fear many other things, because it is the fear of God that frees us from all fear. So why does the narrator even introduce us to Kohelet? If he's coming in to tell us, like, hey, this guy is, he's he's not all that he's cracked up to be, like, you got to be careful with him, it's like, you introduced us to him, like, this is your fault. Like, why did he introduce us to Kohelet in the first place? And that, and the reason why I believe that the narrator introduces us to Kohelet is because he wants us to see Kohelet's hopeless conclusions and to learn from them. He wants us to actually see Kohelet as a form of a goad. And, and this is what I'll explain. So what a goad is, so this is the, the reference that maybe you, you heard in the text. A goad was this long pointy stick that was used to kind of keep an ox in line as it plowed the field. And sometimes there would be a sharp apparatus at the end to kind of poke it and prod it to keep it from going, going too far left or going too far right. And so this prodding stick, so to kind of illustrate it, so I, I have my own goads here. Uh, and so I, this was actually one board, and I forgot about it this morning. And so I got out my, uh, my uh, power saw and cut this at 5 a.m. in this morning. So my, I woke up my neighbors. So this is kind of like the goads. And so a farmer would have these two goads and kind of keeping the ox in line. Trying to keep it from going too far to the left, he'd prod it here. Going too far to the right, he'd prod it here. And I believe what the narrator is doing with Kohelet, this is really weird to use these, like, I feel like a flight attendant here, um, your exits. So what, what Kohelet, or what the narrator rather is doing, is he's trying to use Kohelet as a form of goads. And he's saying, hey, don't go too far down this path, this path where life is all about pleasure, because that's only going to disappoint you. Because you will keep searching for it, you will not find it. But don't go too far down this path where life is pointless because it's just going to depress you. Instead, stay within this middle lane where you can fear God properly and obey his commands and find joy in the purpose of your life. Because the narrator doesn't just say, hey, I've got a good idea, fear God and keep his commands. He says this is the sum total of what it means to be a human, to fear God and to keep his commands. That's what he says after, after he kind of introduces these, this goad mentality, he goes right to this summarizing conclusion in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of humanity, of man, of mankind. Now, it's a little hard to see this in English, but this phrasing in Hebrew, it's very, there's, a, uh, there's an abruptness to it. The way the narrator phrases this, it's like, He's just kind of like saying like, okay, Kohelet, you're done. Like, we, we are tired of hearing this kind of foolishness that you've been espousing. It is time for some real wisdom. There's an abruptness to what the narrator is saying in verse 13. 
And so what the narrator, basically what he's saying is like, look, you, you've tried, we've, we've listened to you, and we are done. At the, end of all of the, at the end of it all, after everything has been said and done, fear God, keep his commands. That's what life is about. And so the narrator accomplishes in less than 12 words what Kohelet couldn't do in about 12 chapters, which was give us actual lasting wisdom for life. And the narrator claims that it's not just wisdom, but it is the very purpose of life to fear God and to keep his commands. Why? Because fearing God frees us from all fear. But even as I say that, like, it's like, okay, okay, I can, I can see where the narrator is getting this, but like still, like I have some problematic baggage with this idea of fearing God. Aren't we to love God? Isn't God love himself? And hasn't he commanded us to not fear? So how can fearing God be good? And here is where we have to understand what, what fear means in the biblical text. In, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, there are two main Hebrew words that are often translated as fear in our English Bibles. And they are the words yare and pakad. Now, and, and in this text, it's the word yare. So say that with me, yare, yare. Look at that, Hebrew scholars. Beautiful, beautiful. So in this text, this word yare, it has more of an association with reverence, with awe, with respect, if you will. What one definition of yare is this, is it is to keep an appropriate distance. And so the idea here is that of respecting boundaries and even rejoicing in boundaries that are for our good. And so, so think about it this way. Think, think of Yare, the proper fear of God, as a caution sign that is at the edge of the Grand Canyon. There, there are several signs around the Grand Canyon that illustrate and indicate, hey, there's a canyon here. Be careful. And those signs are there precisely to instill a bit of fear in us, not to keep us away from the canyon, like turn around, you do not want to see this but rather they're instilling a little bit of fear in us in order that we might keep our distance so that we might enjoy the grandeur of the canyon. The word of caution is not meant to scare us and frighten us away from enjoying the Grand Canyon. Rather, it is meant to help us properly and appropriately enjoy its beauty. Now, pakad, on the other hand, so say that one with me, pakad, Pakad, very good. You got, a, you got a little phlegm in your throat for that one. Pakad is what we typically associate with conventional fear, horror, dread, terror. And both of these words, Yahweh, proper fear, reverence, and pakad, horror and terror, both are words used to describe how humans relate to God in the Bible. But the type of fear that we experience is entirely based on how we view God and how we view his commands. And there's a great way to see how these two words of fear come together to understand our relationship to God in the cousin book of the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are meant to be read together as wisdom literature. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we see Yahweh represented here. Familiar to those who have read Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The Yahweh of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. But look down at verse 33 of chapter 1, and we see the word pakad come up. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Whoever listens to wisdom will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread, without pakad of disaster. And so when you put these two together, what, what Proverbs is telling us is that a proper fear of God should keep us from an unhealthy fear of God. 
Because a proper fear of God leads to knowledge. It leads to wisdom. It leads to obedience. In other words, if we do not properly yare God, if we do not properly fear God through joyful worship and through obedience to his good commands for our good, then we should not be surprised if we find ourselves living life in Picard of God and, frankly, of everything else. If we do not properly fear God in a way that draws us near to him, we should not be surprised if we find ourselves living all of life in dread. In his book, Rejoice and Tremble, theologian Michael Reeves describes how our diminished fear of God, proper fear of God, increases our fear as a culture around us. Listen to what he says. With society having lost God as the proper object of healthy fear, of Yahweh fear, our culture is necessarily becoming even more neurotic, even more anxious about the unknown. Indeed, even more anxious about anything and everything. We are left utterly uncertain about the shifting sands of both morality and reality. In ousting God from our culture, other concerns have assumed a divine ultimacy in our minds. And so rather than properly fearing God, we now fear these other lesser things. And thus we feel helplessly fragile. No longer anchored, society fills with free-floating anxieties. Now, I want to be very careful how I say that because there are legitimate things to be afraid of in our world. I I don't want to minimize that, and I don't want to minimize the anxieties that we feel. But, But what Reeves is addressing for us here is why the fear of God is a good and lovely thing. If we don't properly fear God, then we will easily find ourselves fearing anything and everything. Or to quote the theologian Katy Perry, the pop singer, she's not really a theologian, but but, but, that got your attention. But what she sings, I stood for nothing and so I fell for everything. If we do not fear God properly, we will find ourselves fearing anything and everything. We will either fear God or we will fear everything else. In fact, that's actually the title of a blog that Pastor Nathan wrote a few weeks ago. I encourage you to go check that out on our website. If we do not fear God, we will fear everything else. So when we properly revere and respect and rejoice in God and in his good designs of life for our good, then we will find ourselves protected from the fear, the dread of living life in great uncertainty. And when we properly fear God, We will not have to find ourselves living in fear of living for a lesser joy or living in light of a lesser fear. Because everything else, whether pain or pleasure, is a distant second to the glory, authority, security, and beauty of God. Fearing God frees us from all fears. And when understood and embraced properly, the fear of God, it is not the absence of joy, far from it. On the contrary, it is precisely the way in which we find joy. When you properly respect something that has power, that is actually the beginning of enjoying that thing. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Um, kids, if you're, if you're here in the service, like who has been to the pool? It's summer break. Who's been to the pool? Show of hands, somebody. Okay, we've we got some people. Okay, the pool is great, right? The pool is wonderful. But let me ask you this question. Is the pool safe? It depends, right? The pool is safe depending on whether or not you can swim as well as whether or not people use it as their personal bathroom. That's a whole other issue. But, but is the pool safe? Well, it depends on if you can swim. 
Now, we're teaching our son, Eddie, how to swim right now, and one of the parts of that instruction is to give him a healthy fear of the water. If you don't instill a healthy fear of water, you can find the water becoming a harm to yourself. And it becomes something that no longer you enjoy, but is now a threat to your well-being. When we stop fearing water, we run the risk of harm to ourselves because we are failing to see the design and purpose behind it. This is why, when we relate it to the fear of God, this is why the beginning of wisdom is found in the fear of God. The beginning of wisdom is found in knowing the devastation and destruction that we bring upon ourselves when we fail to live in accordance with God's good design. Do you see how different that is from living a life of, I better do this or God's going to bust me? There's a difference between seeing God as this divine cop who's just trying to get me, rather than seeing and fearing God properly as this father who wants to bless me by remaining in his will and following his good commands. If we do not properly yare God, then we should expect to live a life of pakad, of dread, of horror. And this is why the narrator tells us that the sum total of our lives is wrapped up in fearing God and obeying his commands. And he's, he's not giving us this rigid life uh, or this rigid list of religious rule following. That's not what he's instilling in us. Instead, he's inviting us into a life that is able to endure the hevel, the smoke of life, by holding fast to the source of all of life. When we live in a world where everything feels so uncertain, so mysterious, when, when things feel as though they are shaking all around us, We find a joy in life by holding fast to and properly fearing that which is unshakable, namely God himself, because fearing God frees us from all fears. Probably one of my favorite books I've read this year is a book called You're Only Human by Kelly Capick. I I commend it to you, Pastor Tom, our, our senior founding pastor, recommended this to our staff. Phenomenal book, but in one of the chapters, he offers this very helpful commentary on the fear of God. And listen, listen to what Capic says. He says, by fearing the Lord, we can resist fearing our situations and circumstances. His presence reforms and informs our stories and our understanding of them. Strangely, when we lose our fear of the Lord, we also lose some perception of his comfort, love, and compassion. Those are intertwined together. We seek distractions to avoid our weariness, to numb our sense of meaninglessness, or to fill the silence that haunts us. We try to derive self-understanding, values, and a sense of worth and direction from the creation instead of looking to the creator who alone can show us these things. Fearing God frees us from all fears. Not a fear that causes us to run in shame and hide from him when we don't do things that he has told us to do or when we do things that he has told us not to do, but rather a fear that causes us to reach to God with trembling joy. I I mentioned that book by Michael Reeves, Rejoice and Tremble. Those are great words to describe what it means to properly fear God, to rejoice and tremble. God is calling us to fear him with a fear that enables us to face every fear without being consumed by fear. It's not a fear that says you will no longer fear anything, but we now face things and are able to endure them. Why? Because we fear something far greater. 
He calls us to a fear that sees obedience to his good commands as a joyful opportunity to find joy and meaning in a life that is otherwise filled with smoke. Friends, we, it's no surprise to say that we live in a day and age where we are, we are conditioned and taught to fear everything and to fear everyone. We, we are conditioned to be afraid of just so many things, including someone who disagrees with you. And so it is so hard for us to live a life of proper fear of God when we are consumed by the fears of so many lesser things. And again, while there are legitimate things to be afraid of in this world, such as clowns, just for example, I, sorry, that just came out, that just came out. There are legitimate things to be concerned about and afraid of in this world. But what we understand is that when we properly put God in his place and fear him properly, it puts all other fears in their proper context. Fearing the one who is above all things is what frees us from all fears. We are to fear the one whom the narrator describes in this way as he closes out the book of Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, as we say that, you're like, well, wait a minute. Now, that sounds like the fear of God that I was thinking of, that we should be afraid of God because he's going to get me. He's going to judge us. And so how are we, are, are we to now fear God because he's going to judge us? And this is where I want to close our time. I want to end with this. What the narrator is pointing to in these words, or rather what the Holy Spirit is doing through the authors and the voices of Ecclesiastes, as well as the, all the voices of Scripture, is he's pointing us to the God who allows us to have a joyful fear in him in such a way that we do not have to have dreadful fright of him. What Ecclesiastes is pointing us to is the one whom Isaiah the prophet declared in chapter 11 of Isaiah, the one whose delight would be in the fear of the Lord. The Messiah who would come would be the one who would live his life fully delighting in the fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes is pointing us to the one whom the Apostle John witnessed and observed and saw and experienced in the flesh as he penned these words in 1 John chapter 4. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is also, because he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So how can we fear God? How can we properly fear him when we know that there is judgment to come? How can we see the fear of God as a good thing? And how can we face judgment without fear? It is by looking to the cross of Christ. This is what Kohelet and the narrator did not know in full, but we now have the privilege of seeing back in salvation history. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the foundation for why we are able to declare our fears, bid them cease in our lives. For in Christ, the punishment of our sin and of every fear that, that we face has been removed from us so that we bear it no more and that we fear it no more. The reason why we are able to properly fear God without dread of judgment is because the judgment already fell upon Christ. This is the fuller story that we have the privilege of seeing. The reason that we can stand before God in proper fear without fear of judgment is because the judgment has already come. In the gospel of King Jesus, we see the revealing of the horror of what sin does to us and what sin demands from us. Sin demands punishment. It, de it demands judgment. It demands death. 
And for that is, that's what the cross displays. Have you ever wondered why the cross had to be so horrific and offensive and scandalous? Why couldn't Jesus have died in a more humane way to shed his blood? I believe that the cross had to be offensive to show us the horror of what we all face if we do not come to be shepherded and led and forgiven by Christ. The offense of the cross of Jesus is meant to show us how dreadful our sin is. It is meant to show us the utter horror of living life apart from God, for that is what Christ endured on the cross. But it is simultaneously also showing us a greater truth. The cross of Christ is also showing us the freedom that we can find from such fear. For Jesus on the cross is our loving Messiah, the one who delighted in the fear of the Lord, who has come to deliver us from all fears by delivering us from our sin, because the perfect love of Jesus casts out all fears. Amen? The reason we can stand before God without fear of judgment and condemnation is because it has fully come upon Christ instead of us. The only way that we can properly fear God is by giving the fullness of our lives, of body, of mind, and spirit to the Lord Jesus. For when we do, his life of, perf- of perfection is credited to us. And so we are now judged, yes, by our deeds, but by the deeds of Christ that is now given to us. Because our sins were taken from us, placed upon him, we are judged by the deeds of Christ, and that is why we can stand before a holy and righteous God without fear of condemnation. And we can rejoice and tremble at the holiness of God who has given us his commands for our good. Friends, there is much to fear in this life filled with smoke filled with uncertainty, and filled with chaos of all kinds. But thanks be to God that through Christ, the fears of sin and death and hopelessness are destroyed because fearing God frees us from all fears. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are holy and beyond our comprehension. And in one sense, Lord, we we are unworthy to stand before you We are unworthy to speak to you. We are unworthy to be in your presence if it were not for the Lord Jesus. And we praise you and thank you that because of Christ, our King, who is fully God and fully man, has made a way for broken sinners to stand in the presence of a holy God without fear of judgment so that we can properly fear, rejoice, and tremble at the goodness of God who longs to bless us. So Lord, would you in this moment remove our fears by removing our sins so that we might trust in Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would bring a remedy to the fears in this room and that you would do so by allowing us to properly fear you above all things. And may we see that there is nothing to fear in terms of judgment and condemnation because it has fallen upon Christ. And so, Lord, would you speak to those who are gripped by fear and declare over them that perfect love of Jesus Christ casts out fear. May we be a people who live in light of this truth in every aspect of our lives. Would we come to see that fearing God truly fears us, frees us from all fears? May it be so. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.